This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer-Blondie. This is Roland Ozebal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network. Available wherever you get your podcasts. What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 94 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnson from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host will be joining me shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. After Mike and I get all caught up and talk way too much about walking our dogs, we'll talk about snare drum tuning. And trust me, we discuss this topic in length. Our featured artist this time is none other than Mr. Chris Coleman. In our gear review section, Mike will be checking out the Nordrum 3P Multipad. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. <laughs> Man, on my end, that was that was dotted eighth notes. Really? Click. I mean, it's it's really we should probably do like a, a test to see what the actual delay is because it's like perfectly in unison for me. That's so awesome. Well, Skype's got their thing down, man. Yeah. You know what? The way to find out is next week you do the countdown and you do the snap, and then we'll see it. if you yeah. hear. It. Yeah. Because <laughs> I snapped and then I opened my green tea. I took three sips and then your snap came through. <laughs> it's amazing we're even able to have a coherent conversation. I know it's crazy. I, and you know what's funny is like questionably what are we, we're on we're on episode 94 right yes 94 we got six more to 100 still neither one of us has, has researched podcasting whatsoever i know like, <laughs> we it? have like over five hundred thousand downloads and neither one of us we're like well i don't know we just skype and record it right is that isn't that how everybody does yeah, it i'm still but using we don't... like a 99 dollar recorder i mean i haven't even <laughs> <laughs> it's so awesome. I've got a beer koozie on top of a $500 Audio Technica mic trying to muffle down the echo in this room. Yep, my mic is on a practice pad, a Steve Gadd signature practice pad, in fact. <laughs> Dude. Oh, man. I think I think if we actually knew what we were doing, we'd ruin this whole dang thing. I don't want to think man. about it too much. That's what I'm saying. Like When people start getting all mad at us for saying the wrong stuff, I'm like, oh, man. I think I, I can't don't care. I don't think I can do this show anymore if I can't just say really bad mistakes all the time. Incorrect things. Yeah, that's that's kind of the point. Don't believe me. Don't take my word for no. it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I think uh if somebody went through the podcast with a fine tooth comb, they've been like, "Ah, eh, they're about they're batting like a good solid 300, three, you know. Yeah, right. I'd say 30% of the time they're spot on. <laughs> and then there's a couple, you know. But that's great in the major leagues, 300 you're an all-star. Uh, yeah, I feel yeah. like I think we're doing just fine. How are you, bud? <laughs> Not too bad. Not too bad at all. It's almost the end of the week here. Actually, I guess it'll be Friday for those of you listening. So long weekend in store. This is the first weekend really? I think in probably six months where I have no obligations whatsoever. 
Which oh, would be nice. buddy, congrats. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I'm sure I'm going to give myself more things to do than I should. But How long has it been since you've seen your wife in the daylight? <laughs> well, weekends, Keep the weekends are okay. usually like chores, so... You know, ah, you know, okay. So <laughs> grocery shopping and whatever other thing, lots of dog walks. So that is definitely helpful. Yeah. There's a lot of That's, that. I mean, those those dogs need a lot of walking, and if they don't get the walks, then everyone just gets angry, and it's not a good yeah. not a good experience. Amber and I just you know we just moved um, maybe three months ago, and we found all these these new walks for ourselves because we've been walking the same walks forever and mm. now now we're even driving to places to walk yeah, because the yeah. walk itself is so beautiful and it's like okay this is our family time yeah uh and so if we found these hills that we walk and yeah it's, it's the the dog walk thing is good it's kind of like have you ever played golf before yeah oh, you a golfer my my dad used to make me go once a year with him and i hated i absolutely hate golf i feel like it's a three-hour waste of time like i really absolutely cool let me go into this speech about how awesome it is thanks <laughs> maybe we should have prepped that in the show notes holy hell i did almost hit one eagle my entire life and that was it that was the last time i there remember playing it was like well if you golf with your friends instead of just <laughs> hating the whole time it's uh it's kind of the same thing like you get out there and you have this moment of like it's it's golf and you're playing the game but eventually the boredom sets in and then the real life kind of takes place because you guys have already caught up for the first 20 minutes but you still like you said have three more hours to go yeah and then you get deep you know and that's kind of how dog walks are with the family it's like you know we catch up on the day and then it's like well we got about two more miles to go and we're out of stuff to catch up on (laughs) now let's now let's get into some stuff so i I love dog walks so so. what's the deal with bomber riders do they get nuts if they don't walk a lot wimes no no they're good they're uh they're very um They're called Velcro dogs because they they have to stick on you at all times. Mm. They cannot be in a room without you. Um, So, um, but it's, it's, so yeah, so they're, they're with you all the time, but no, they, they just kind of take the shape of you. Mm. But the, I think where the craziness is, is they pick up on your craziness. So if you're kind of erratic, they just, they're on it and they just, they see it as like a get out of jail free card. They're like, well, you're losing your stuff. So I'm losing my stuff. (laughs) And they start running around the house. Like it's a Greyhound track. Um, but yeah, if you're chilling, they love to chill. So the good thing is they just keep up with your lifestyle. And Amber and I have a pretty active lifestyle, so That's they're good. happy to do it. Yeah. yeah. So, and then we have a younger one. So Juno's four, and Jack is nine. And Juno just won't allow Jack to age. Hmm. She just she'll just smack him in the face like we gotta go, we gotta go, keep that energy up. So everything's good, dude. Drum camp. Yeah, Man, you're in the. I hit the where you camp at? The lottery. Peak of it. Where are you at? Is it like? This is yes. Day what? Day three, four? Uh four. Day four. Okay. So peak I would say the the peak of just getting over the hump was last night or yesterday. Yesterday's a long day for the campers. And now today's just smooth sailing. Everybody's accepted their limitations. They've found growth in themselves through the practice regiments that I've installed and everyone's just on a high. They're actually all right now it's funny, one uh, there's a guy here from Sweden, Peter and he was telling the campers last night, he's like, you know, uh, I won't fake his Swedish accent, but he's like, man, the hotel breakfast is really good. And all of the American campers are like, are you nuts? Because it's, it's what you would think of a hotel breakfast, right? It's yeah, like everything's on scrambled hot eggs. From, yeah. yeah, exactly. From powder. And so anyways, uh, I mean, it's really not that bad compared to like a Motel 6 because this is a nice inn, but it's still a hotel breakfast. And uh, so then one of the campers asked my wife, Amber, like, please tell me you guys have like a legit breakfast diner around here. And we literally we do. We have the Sutter Street Grill, which is walking distance from their hotel. So they're all up there right now. They've got plates of cinnamon 
French toast that are it's bigger than loaves of bread. They've got I, I looked at Peter's plate and I was like, bruh, did you just order a bowl of gravy? And he's like, no, this is this is, this is the hash browns and sausage. And I it, you couldn't see anything. It was just a huge mm. bowl. Of gravy. So they're getting like their real breakfast on. So I would assume that class one's going to suck for the teach because they're going to be in these carbidose comas yeah, no and kidding. just wrecked. Um, but no, it's been amazing. This is one of those lottery camps for me where on day one, the campers just completely bond and support the heck out of each other. So um, that makes my job a lot easier because the hard part about my job is not teaching drums. I can do that every day, any day. The hard part is taking eight people that are all stuck in their own heads about their own weaknesses and their own failures and their own insecurities. And I'm trying to I, you know, I feel like Phil Phil Jackson trying to manage this team mm-hmm. of superstars, but they're all in their own heads. That's when the camp gets hard. Well, when when the campers are supporting each other, it takes a lot of pressure off of me. You know, I, and I'm not kidding, and I'm not making this up. We had on day one, we had a camper up there uh, on my stage, and they're demoing what we're learning, and it, and they're struggling, and you could hear these whispers around the room of just you got it. You got it. Come on, you got it. And it was just like, oh yeah, like this is this is the shiitake mushrooms. This is so good. <laughs> I got it. I caught it. <laughs> what in the funky primer? I got it. Um, <laughs> watch it now, Johnston. So, uh, so yeah. So it was just awesome. It, it's it's been a great camp. And then uh, last night was my. Uh, my band's first official gig. We played to eight campers. And, oh, uh, that's right. First you talked about that last live. week. Yeah. So yeah, the transition from rehearsal mode to performance mode. What changed? Oh. You know, what Dog. Was, what was the experience? Okay. Wow. So different. Like one thing is, our, our our songs are pretty complex as far as we're in odd time signatures. But the point is that we're never implying really where the one is. We're just having this floating feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't want everyone to go, oh, this one's clearly in seven. It's just like, no, it's just music. Well, in a rehearsal, when you get off of the one or somebody loses track, you just stop and say, oh, let's just take it back from the A section. Mm-hmm. When you're performing, there's no stopping <laughs> yeah. ever. Yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, and I got to say my bass player last night, I did have a couple times where I got a little lost in the phrasing and my my bass player was just the rock he just was he yeah, never good. tried to join my new one huh. he just stayed there and and he's he's a monster uh he's a monster bass player as far as not like a show-off guy but just he holds it down mm-hmm. and i was telling the campers i'm like you guys don't know how beautiful that is because if he would have jumped to me right at the point that i came back to him then we would have been just flip-flopping the ones mm. for like the next 10 bars trying to find each other. But he just he just trusted, like, oh, if I stay here, Michael will eventually find it. And so so it was great. And um, yeah, and then there was also an element of performance mode. Now we have yeah. to look a certain way while we play. It, it was amazing. And I got to say, thanks to the campers, to, to look up and see those eight supportive faces. Um, the last time I played with a guitar player was at Arco Arena to 25,000 people. This was way more nerve-wracking than that. That was nothing. Yeah. That was yeah. it was a piece of cake. Eight people that are like wanting the best for you but they also have expectations like, "Ooh, we're going to see Mike play in a band." <laughs> and it's like, dude, my heart was pounding. But it, we had a blast. So, huge thanks to the campers and then uh hopefully we'll start recording soon. So, dig it. Dig it. Dig dude, it. This is a this is a controversial topic right here. Which one? Where are we at? Uh, we're at we're at education. We're not talking about Steve Maxwell Drum Shop, are we? <laughs> no, no. Just wanted to give a heads up that Bill's Drum Shop in Portland, Oregon, burned down. They've moved to Poughkeepsie. Oh, I'm sorry. I was totally wrong about that. They're fine. 
<laughs> there probably is a Bill's drum shop, and now I'm going to hear about I know, it. Thank I, you. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, we're talking about something way crazier, snare drum tuning. Mm-hmm. So I think tuning in general has a, a system, whether it's bass drum, snare drum, congas, there's a system to tuning. But I also think that each individual drum part of the kit, so toms I put into one category, bass drum and snare drum, I do think they are approached slightly different. They're different animals for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, the core values stay the same, but I, they're different. And the other thing that makes a snare drum different is that paper-thin tissue bottom head. Yeah, uh, you don't get that tone that you would get out of your bottom of your rack tom or even a bass drum, both heads. So, and the wires. Um, I mean, the wires obviously what, make it a totally different instrument, hundred percent different. Absolutely, <laughs> it's also the shallowest drum we have on our drum set, so the tone it doesn't have enough time to create that long form tone. So when you're tuning a snare, um, you might only get doom out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're tuning pretty t- pretty high. So as far as tuning, let's just get to one thing right away because i think this is the thing that everyone's taught which is how do you turn tune do you tune in a star pattern do you go tension rod furthest away then tension rod closest do you go in a circle if you're Mm. starting with a slack head yeah i think it doesn't matter as long as you do it consistently um and and gradually uh i guess in a perfect scenario i have two drum keys so i didn't i do opposite uh, tension rods at the same time so i'll do like yeah. 10 o'clock and two o'clock or whatever the opposite with three and nine yes, of course and and do each one like a half turn and just go around clockwise that's that would be so ideal you're bringing the head down if if possible you're bringing the head down all level at the same time yeah if you can. exactly but if i'm just using one key i'll first time it's definitely the cross pattern so i go like six o'clock 12 o'clock and then jump over to one o'clock and keep rotating around just the <laughs> I think Are you visualizing key. a clock in your head right I'm now? I'm trying to figure out. I am because when you say one o'clock, I'm like, oh, so one. Oh, like, so one. How does that, that work on an app, uh, <laughs> Apple Watch? How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm with you. But I, yeah, I, I, I do just the gra- same I think thing. a gradual is the only thing. So for, I think you can go in a circle. I don't think. I mean, there's a lot of uh, classic snare drum method books that that's the way they teach how to tune a drum going in a circle. I don't think it. Hmm. I don't think you, you need to be too precious about it as long as you don't do like three cranks on one lug and then go to the next one and do three cranks and it's getting off, yeah. off kilter. So just gradual and evenly and then once I have it up to, tune, up to the, the tension that I'm going to play it at, then I usually just go clockwise just so I can keep track so I don't like yeah. skip over lugs by mistake um, yeah. at that point. So yeah, that's like the first step for me is just kind of bringing the whole head down evenly usually a lot higher than i will ultimately keep it at just to stretch it all I, I do out. the same i yep. don't again i don't even know if we need to stretch heads out anymore but i just do it i just feel better that i'm right. over tightening it a bit so then the, yeah i feel like i can back it off and not have it and know, just slack. for you guys out there that are new to drumming when we say that we're over tightening the head we're not doing it to make the drum sound better at its eventual tuning point what we're saying is we're going to over tighten the head which in our minds is stretching it out then when we back it off to our normal it's going to stay there longer without loosening on us um so the the idea is that if you tuned it to your perfect tension the very first time you'd ever put on the head and you start beating the crap out of it it would stretch out a little bit and loosen yeah and so we're saying we're pre-doing that yeah exactly so then from there i think um you know actually i wanted because i have kind of like I've gone kind of super detailed into my tuning. I actually wanted to hear your, because you have a pretty consistent snare drum sound. So mm, what do you mm-hmm. do to get your sound? And then I'll go into my kind of different sure. philosophies. Yeah, um, 
I was I was actually always made fun of that at my first business that I owned called the Drum Lab because um, my jazz teacher there he was like this is before TuneBots or any of that stuff mm-hmm. and he's like dude do you know what you're doing and I'm like I don't know what you mean man and he lined up he took all the toms out of all the rooms all the tens lined them all up and they were spot on I mean every one of them lined up all the snares he's like you have no variation like do you just not have a palette or I'm like I'm telling you man like I have this thing in my head this is what a snare sounds like and that's left over from Vinny and then this is what a 10 sounds like it's left over from Abe Cunningham like it's the first note of my own summer that's a 10 inch tom in my head and you know and then Benny Greb's 16 that's a floor tom doesn't matter whether it's a 14 or a 16 that's a floor tom and so (laughs) Uh, so yeah, so, um, as far as my process, it's pretty simple. I think I do the same thing as you. I do the single key thing, but I just go across, um, snares off. I always tune my snare with it sitting on my drum throne. So it's muting the bottom head and muting the snares. Okay. Um, and so it's, I I know that I'm only tuning the top head. I go, uh, back and forth, just like you said, and I get the drum. Uh, also, like you said, I get what the tune bot would call the fundamental pitch, so I hit the drum and I go, okay, that's the pit, that's the, uh, yeah, the pitch I want the snare drum to be, but it's not maybe in tune. And then I go into fine tuning mode, and that's when I'm doing the tap by each lug mm-hmm. and listen. The other thing that has really changed this a lot for me and helped me is I started putting my ear um, at just normal height, but I started moving my head into the drum and putting my ear over the middle of the head. Because I was noticing that the tension rods further away from me were at different pitches than they actually were. The Toombot was saying they're spot on. But I'm like, no, that's lower. Mm. But it was actually physically further away from me. When I put my kind of ear in the middle of the drum a little bit, probably maybe three feet off of the top of it, then I actually could hear the pitch of the drum a lot better. So I go through and I fine tune it. And then f- from that point on, um, I would say the TuneBot is actually doesn't show up in my snare drum tuning at all. Um, mm. It's only my toms so that I use what, that for. What is that fundamental that you're looking for? What are you what are you searching? It's um, think of let's see the first time that Vinny hits his snare in seven days by Sting. Mm. So he's cross sticking the whole time, and then at some point he goes crack like in the verse there's one like snare hit yeah and it just i don't know it's just a crack that has stuck out to me since i heard that album and that's and it's funny because i can't actually achieve that sound recording wise because i don't have a snare mic i only have an overhead mic so nobody would ever think when they hear my snare oh that's a vinnie but it's close to it when you're in the room with me you know um uh, but yeah so i I don't know. There's this fluffiness if I go too low, and then there's this choked out thing if I go too high. And there's somewhere. The other thing that I was going to ask you is, for me, my drums. Each drum I have, it I can't tune them all the same because their properties don't respond the same, and their sizes don't respond the same. There is a point where a drum will choke out sooner than another drum, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And so yeah, so I have to find that sweet spot of that drum, and. Uh, um, I don't find drums to be as versatile as other people because I'm so anal about my my snare sound that it's like, mm. well, no, there's, it's not that versatile because there's this sweet spot that that drum has, and that's where it's, I'm going to keep it. Um, so it's kind of weird. So have yeah. you ever played a drum that had a sweet spot that wasn't where you wanted it, therefore you didn't yeah. like the drum? Oh, absolutely. Well, no, and, I, and instead of not liking it, like I have one. Um, my 14 by 6.5 uh, Gretsch USA Bronze, mm-hmm. not the copper uh, – I'm I did it again. It's the copper, not the bronze. God dang it. No, it's, it's my f- isn't it the bronze, not the copper? No, so, exactly right. <laughs> so the bronze I have in a 14 by 5.5. That is my favorite. Oh, right, right. The, the 6.5, they uh, they sent me 
Um, and then actually, my uh, the guy that works here, Nate, I let him borrow it for a gig. He dropped it and um, so kind of messed it up. That's copper. He bought me a new one. That's copper. Okay. The, the only six and a half that I own is copper. And that's a, um, copper is an interesting metal that we can talk talk about. It is kind of a limited sound i think yeah and it has it's 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 home base it's sweet spot is much lower than anything i would play Hmm. i don't dislike it at all i love it going it when i need that that drum is right there uh when i have a student that's like hey can i film a drum cover and it's like yeah what are you doing uh brooks and dunn yeah i got the drum for you no problem that drum detuned with like you know some moon gel on it it's just like it sounds like you're in a session so so yeah I, i just that my snare collection is not let me have all my drums sound the same, but in different colors and different materials. My snare collection is this one's sweet spot is way higher than my normal snare. I'll, it's on my shelf, and whenever I need that, instead of tuning my snare up, I'm going to go grab that snare that responds at that tuning. Hmm. Quite so. interesting. <laughs> That's your code for like, what the <laughs> hell are you thinking? <laughs> Just get one Black Beauty and be done with it. <laughs> No, I mean that's you know that's I think that's ultimately why guys show up to sessions with racks of snare drums. They they have each drum kind of where they think it sounds best, and they know exactly where it is, and they can pick that drum for that sound. Um, I yeah, I mean we I you and I respond. That. I, you and I I think really respond to drums. We, we we think all the drums are amazing. So the ones that you and I seem to re, like freak out the most over are the ones that have the highest range of sweet spot. You yeah, know, yeah. it's like. Because that means, like, hell, with this drum, I could get rid of four of my snare drums. Yeah. Because this takes the place of those ranges. So I'm never looking for, like, oh, your sweet spot is better than this one. It's just how many sweet spots do you have? Yeah. Um, the question for and, me is how you define a sweet spot. Because for, for one guy, it could mm-hmm. be the super tight, no resonance. For another guy, it could be detuned all the way and totally. somewhere in the middle. And we always use these terms like medium tuning. Well, I've, I've I've played a lot of drums where guys say they're medium tuning, and it can be anything from extremely tight to extremely low, and they call that. Yeah, a medium I mean, tuning. it's 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 medium based off of what they normally do at home, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm sure Chad Sexton from 311, his medium tuning is still pretty up there for us, yeah, you know, because exactly. he's used to playing a timbali with snares. <laughs> <laughs> Which hey, I, I I chased that sound so much that I actually, oh my god, I broke lugs on my acrylate trying to get that sound when I was. Do in you know high what school. I? You know, I actually use for that. I don't know if you'll remember this, but you might because I, I don't know if they're even a, a company anymore. But I used a 12 by 5.5 brass Ascend snare drum. Do you remember Ascend? Oh, yeah. Who owned that brand? I don't remember who owned Man, it. I don't yeah. know. 12 by 5 brass? 12, 12 by 5.5 brass. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, and nobody knows this, my very first endorsement ever was like one of those total junior endorsements. But it was with Mapex drums. The Mapex rep came into my store when I was 17 and I was teaching and I knew he was coming in and I didn't have a lesson. So in my teaching room, which had glass doors at the time so the, cl- the customers could see into the teaching rooms, I was just in there ripping, just going in <laughs> hmm. and, and then just kind of opened the door like, oh, I'm sorry, have you been here for a while? What's your name? And he's like, oh, I'm the Mapex rep. I thought the sales rep was the actual rep of the, was the A&R because uh-huh. I was so young. I didn't know anything. Yeah. Um, and he's like, he's like, well, are you guys interested in carrying Mapex? We weren't Mapex dealers yet. And then I was just trying to finagle my way into an endorsement. I got like a 25% off endorsement, which to me was like, hey, that's, mom, that's still I'm a something. pro. Yeah, exactly. Oh, dude, it was, and it, it was 25 off of cost. Yeah. So it actually was, to me, quite something. Um, and yeah, the first thing I did was got a 12 by 5.5 brass Black Panther snare to replace oh, my Ascend. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember 
my biggest joy in life was sound check when he'd be like drummer snare drum and i was like here it comes bruh and i would hit it and then like everyone in the room would plug their ears and somehow i thought that that was cool like by ruining people's were you, lives were you using a kevlar head on that thing <laughs> no, no, I was. Uh, I would say I was probably at that time. I wasn't like an Aquarian artist, so double ply, you know, text uh, coated head. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it, it actually had quite a bit of resonance. It was uh, that was the thing. I, Abe was using one uh, in the Deftones back then. We were we were just kids, you know. So, anyways, I mean. I, I agree. I think snare tuning and medium tuning, it's like that's defined by what you think normal is. Yeah, exactly. So I tend to, uh, I tend to be. I don't know how, what would be the word, but I I don't think many drums have a perfect sound for me. So I think of every drum having four possible sounds. Some will work better in, in certain sounds than others. So I think of like there's like a very, there's like a a very tight sound that's to right. the point where the batter head is starting to choke out. So what that ends up giving me is a more of a pop and less resonance and like a denser kind of a sound that's one sound and sure. almost every drum can do that you crank it up and it's sharp it's very sharp bad. yeah uh, some drums sound thinner when you get them cranked up but some, some drums sound really dense and full so i'm looking for that's how i'm kind of judging how does this drum sound in the very tight region is it sound mm-hmm. thin or does it sound full then there's the what you call the medium range which i think is where it's you know i learned I think it was Kenny Arnoff discussed this in, in one of his early modern drummer stories about how he tunes the snare drum up to the point when it chokes and then backs it down just to the point when the batter head kind of opens up and has full mm-hmm. resonance. So I think that would okay. be like the upper of the medium tuning for me. That point yeah. when the, the head is not choking out at all, but, but it's right. still kind of tight. Uh, so then I think of that as medium and you can back that down maybe a half a turn, but that's still kind of in the medium range where I'm thinking it's, it's more like a Tom, like a pure pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, yeah. so I, then I test drums that rat range, how balanced are the overtones? How long does it ring? Is it, does it have an annoying high pitched overtone that I can't get? And I think of? that that, I think that that tuning is where you learn the most about the drums properties, yeah, right? Cause exactly. you, it, it will, that's the first time that the drum could actually disappoint you. Yeah. When you're way up there, it's probably going to work fine. And exactly. but then right in there, it, it could actually get that crying. Yep. Crying. Like what the hell yeah. is that? That or yeah, there's like, like one frequency that just juts out. So a lot of times, I even put when I'm reviewing drums, I'll put it in Ableton Live. I'll record it and look at it with like a Spectrum Analyzer in Ableton Live mm. or something. Or I'll grab an EQ and just start pulling it around and seeing where does the the frequency jut out the most. And mm. you know, great. a drum for me is good or bad depending on is there are there none of those nodes or none of those hot spots where the frequencies just like spike beyond belief? Yeah. So that's kind of the medium range. And I think the third range is if you go down a little bit further than that, that's kind of the medium low, um, kind of gushy sound, which would be kind of like the modern country sound where it's kind of more of a honk, uh, to the resonance. So it starts to sound kind of more punchy, but there's still a lot. And it really works with, really works with some gaff tape, when, yeah. Once you kind of shut down those frequencies, then it goes. Well, yeah, I think of that as that the cool fourth. Sound. That to me is the fourth region. Oh, okay. So there's that medium low where you still can have it unmuffled and it's not it's not going crazy. Um, I think that's where like the Black Beauty really excels and the Superphonics mm-hmm. and those kind of drum metal drums tend to really have a nice like medium low vibe. Wood drums can sometimes have too much pitch in my experience in that mm-hmm. that tuning with no with no. Uh, 
no muffling. And then the fourth region is that super low Def Leppard sampled sound. And right. not every drum can do that either. So that's nope. I'm judging every drum I test on those four regions. Can it do the super low, you know, like Michael Jackson Def Leppard's drum sample sound? Right. Can it do that medium low kind of honk when I think of modern country or something like that? Can okay. it do the medium sound, which is the what everyone thinks of a snare drum? Snare drum. And then can it do the super tight, you know, cracky thing? This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Where would you put Well, and the other thing that we should talk about too, or at least mention, is all of these tuning ranges, if you were actually to measure them on a tune bot, really shift and are really different based off the depth of the drum. Um, yeah, Kenny Arnoff probably has n- always played at least six and a half depth or deeper. So to him, cranking it up, he still gets a low fat tone because it's a nice big drum. If you did that on Garibaldi's uh, piccolo, it's going to be totally different. Yeah. You know? um, so the, the, the depth of the drum has a lot to do with it. And like you said, also the material, what you're going to get out of uh, a brass drum versus a walnut drum is going to be pretty different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so solid do you versus think, ply makes yeah, a big yeah. difference. I think that's why um, like someone like Shannon Forrest tends to not use ply drums because he tunes kind of in that medium and lower range, and ply drums mm-hmm. in that range sometimes can just like have weird weird tones. That happened with us last week, that sugar snare drum. I could never get it low enough to stop working. Mm-hmm. No matter how low I went, and that's a stave drum, but it is still solid yeah, stave. Solid you know? But no matter how low yeah. I got it, it just was like whatever. I got you, man. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. um, so let me ask you this: Do your four tuning ranges was that present in your world as a young drummer, or do you think that's a result of you reviewing snares for modern drummer for the last decade or whatever? It's a combination of both. I mean, I've certainly had to become more scientific. I mean, I would never think to use tuning devices or a spectral analyzer before I was actually having to compare. You know, I've probably reviewed 100 snare drums in the past 13 right. years. So I and have they're to all have, high quality for yeah, the most part. I have so to have some with, kind of like control in the situation. But, you know, early on, my ears just weren't weren't developed all i wanted to hear i mean i was literally cranking the heads as high as i could possibly crank them sometimes using right. drumsticks to help me make it even yeah, tighter. yeah i've done that and i remember <laughs> very distinctly i was in the all-state orchestra and you know i had to bring my own snare drum and they didn't you know the guy was like yeah bring a six and a half by 14 wood drum like i don't own a six and a half by 14 wood drum i'm gonna bring my <laughs> my junkyard superphonic that i pieced together but i had it so cranked like it, it sounded like a piccolo Right. And he he went, came up after the rehearsal and he just looked at me and kind of like smirked. He goes, "What are you doing?" And he like he probably turned the detuned it by one and a half turns, and I was like shocked. I'm like, "Oh my god, what is he doing to this drum?" Right. It's like you should never tune a snare drum that tight. But my ears just couldn't couldn't hear that that wasn't a good sound. I, all I wanted right. to hear was just the attack and the pop. And I, yeah, I, I and I bet that was. I mean, if that's you, what were you in high school? I would have been a sophomore in high school, yeah. So if you're a sophomore in high school, that means that 311 was huge. That means that mm-hmm. No Doubt had just released their first record. Chili um, Peppers, that, yeah, I mean, it was Chili all Chili Peppers, that, that was the sound, you know. And you probably, knowing you, you probably were also at least somewhat of a police fan, and Stuart yeah. was always cranking a snare. 
Um, yeah, that, that was just so, yeah. the sound that, I, and plus, I wanted my snare to sound like it was on the albums, which I didn't realize compression and EQ and all that were involved. That is a, a really good thing. People don't know what compression does to the, the smack of a snare, and the only way to almost recreate that is to crank it, to choke it. Yeah, when you exactly. choke your snare, that's what the compression is doing, right? <laughs> yeah. So you think you're getting it, and then, but when you record that, it's not a good sound. No, and, yeah, uh, <laughs> and I did a, I did a record for my uncle's band, and I had I had two drums. I had the Superphonic six and a half by fourteen, and I had five by fourteen chrome over brass Slingerland, and I had them both as tight as you could possibly tune them, like. The heads were just screaming bloody murder at me, and <laughs> at one point, you know, I, I was like swapping drums every song. And I remember at one point, the the engineer got on the headphones. He goes, "Is that the same drum? I mean, I can't really tell what's going on in there. Could you oh maybe God. tune it down a little bit?" And again, I was oh. like, "No, <laughs> you know, yeah, tune it down." I get. Oh, you want it up a little bit more? Because I could probably, if you have a, a wrench in the back, I could probably get this up a little more. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I did the I did the same thing, but it, it was the sound. Uh, I liked cutting. We liked shocking people with our snare. Oh, that's killing. I remember, you know, uh, John Otto was out with Limp Biscuit playing that 50-ply OCDP yeah, like snare. Shotgun. Yeah, and cranked, yeah. you know. And by itself, it, he just loved for his snare to cut, but he was also going for that hip-hop sound yeah. with, like, a rock volume, you know. So, And, and one of the, un, think, you know, the, the hidden secrets is most of those records, I mean— I can't confirm 100%, but there's some samples on there to beef it up. Of course. If you heard the raw tracks, it probably sounded like he was hitting a tin can. Absolutely. You know, so, that's, uh, so I guess back to answer the original question, it wasn't until I had to do a lot of recording that I realized super tight snares with a mic really close to it just sound small. They just don't sound that good. Unless you put right. like reverb on it or something to make it sound bigger. So that's when I really started discovering you know, where does the snare drum fit in the mix. And nine that, times out of the ten, it's in the medium-low or yeah, range. and that's another thing too. Is I don't think we realize until we're deep into it. When you say where does the snare fit into the mix, I think we all think where does it fit into the drum mix. But we don't understand how much of a role that snare on two and four plays in the songs mix. Yeah. It has a frequency range that yeah. it's covering, and when you crank your snare too high, the, it's so weird to think that because my snare is too high, now the mix sounds thin. Yeah. You would think like, well, yep. that's just my bass drum and my floor toms. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. your snare was actually covering a lot of that. And if you if you tune past that range, then it's like okay, it's just going to have a thin sound. It's, you go back and listen to those no doubt records, you know. I mean, yeah, they're they're amazing, but they are thin. Yeah, exactly. It's all it's all it's all attack, and you end up having like a sixty fourth note of sustain, and, and rather than yeah. like a quarter note of tone that you kind of want sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's also I'm yeah. dialing in like what is the, which also is partly how tight are the snare wires. You know, mm-hmm. I'll loosen them for ballads just to make it f- give it a longer sustain or a perceived sustain, even though it's not actually sure. sustained any longer. Uh, so yeah, there's so many variables. I think, I think the hardest part is how you define it, which is I think a device like the TuneBot is great because you can actually analyze. All right, when does my drum transform from the the pure 14 inch tom tone to the choked out? pitch yeah. like what is yeah. the exact frequency where that happens where is the exact yep. frequency where the tone gets a little bit more complex and it gets that kind of fatter medium low like and then i like to you know we, we use the tune actually um buck august is here friend of the podcast he's here at camp mm-hmm. right now and i was teaching yesterday was my private lesson day where all the campers get a half hour private lesson with me and then when they're not in their private lesson with me, they're practicing all day to get up on stage and perform. So anyways, uh, I come out of my lesson and Buck is teaching uh, this lady, Helen, from England. He's teaching her how to tune with the TuneBot. And immediately, like, there's this part of me that's like, don't do that without me present because yeah. I, 
it, that can be so scary. Like people can use the tune bot and be like, this thing's wrong. Cause your ear yeah. tells it's like that. Those two pitches can't be the same. It's like, no, they are like your ear just isn't ready yet. You know? Um, yeah. or the total opposite is those pitches are identical, but the tune bot says they're 20 Hertz off. And it's like, yeah. no, they are, man. You just can't hear that. <laughs> Cause yet. there's so many um, overtones. I mean, if your ear totally. is only hearing one partial, then you're never going to, I mean, unless you put your ear down a half inch from the head, you're not going to hear all the overtones. Yeah, I mean, the, the TuneBot for me, I, I I still maintain that I wish they would rename it the Fine TuneBot because I use it for fine tuning. I don't tune my drums with it. I tune my drums by ear. Once I get them close to where I want them, then I fine tune them with the TuneBot, and then they sing. Uh, yeah. They the TuneBot. I will say this: it does get my drums to open up and be themselves more than I can do without it. Um, Absolutely. But it's yeah. it's a frustrating instrument if you have a slack head and you put the TuneBot on and you don't know that you're supposed to kind of get it in the ballpark first. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh-huh. true. I, I, would, I wouldn't put the TuneBot on unless I was already had tensioned the head. I guess exactly. defining tension versus tuning. I pre-tension the head, get it kind of evenly medium-ish, and then I make sure that use the TuneBot to make sure the tension rods are identical. Exactly. And then, that's, yeah. And I, then generally from there... Once I use the TuneBot after that initial seating in the medium-tight range, I only use the TuneBot to tell me the fundamental from there on out. So I don't okay. I don't fine-tune, unless the drum all of a sudden just gets really strange. Something's really weird. Yeah, if I have some growl, that's when I pull out my TuneBot. Usually, I mean, I, I, I want to be able to tune by ear for the most part. But yeah, when I if my floor tom just won't stop growling and I've tried everything, then I, I grab the TuneBot. And, and, then, and it always fixes it. But it, it can be a frustrating device until you know how to use it. Once you know how to use it, it's brilliant. I think you should. It's so. almost like a lightsaber. You've got to go through training to be a Jedi yes. for years before you can get that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, here's, here's one way to wrap this up. Have you ever seen any information on snare drum tuning or tuning in general that, that would allow you to get out of having to experiment in a room for a few years? Um, you know what? I was actually going to search for this and I forgot because um, I went down the rabbit hole of tuning like like a madman uh, several years back. And I tried to find every resource and inevitably people just use nebulous adjectives. Uh, this was before the TuneBot existed, so there was no references. But there is something before you before you drop the word adjectives. I thought nebulous was a, a device like, wait, people are using nebulous. How do I? How much is that what on, an on amazing uh, device? It doesn't actually do anything specifically. <laughs> I know. It's, a, it's just like yeah. it's just a ball. You know what? I think, whole... I think Siri should be called Nebulous. <laughs> yes, it doesn't do anything actually. Hey Siri, where's the best Chinese food? Um, somewhere around here. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me type that into Google, which you could have easily done. But thanks for wasting my time. But there I'm is like, oh, there is easy. a document um, that's online. I, I don't know where the actual source is, but it's called the Drum Tuning Bible by Scott Johnson. It came out about 15 or so years ago that I did use that, and I did try all of his methods because he goes like in super detail about snare drums and bass drums and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, even that, I didn't feel like I could use that as a foolproof method. I still had to spend time with each one of my drums, like hours with each yeah. one of my drums and just figure out because what does happen if the bottom – because I do have – I have an old uh, Slingerland – it's not a Radio King, but it's a single ply maple drum that if the bottom head is too tight, it doesn't sound good at all. That's the bottom head almost has to be like finger tight sometimes. Wow. So really? That, if I use any kind of standard practice, that drum, I'm like, man, this drum just right. sounds like, like garbage. But when right. I have it in the right spot, because the, you know, because the snare beds aren't hundred percent perfect. And so the head needs right. to be loose to kind of mold around all those inaccuracies. 
but that drum is like stellar when I have the bottom you know, head like against every rule of bottom head snare drum tuning. It, it's funny that you say it because I've never gotten in my time as a DW artist and all my time as a Gretsch artist, I've never gotten a new drum set that sounded better than my current drum set. Because with my current drum set, I know it's I know it's tendencies. I've, yeah, I've had it for yeah. two or three years. My new drum set, even if it's like, oh, you went from a Catalina to a USA Custom, it's like the USA Custom will sound worse than my Catalina because my Catalina is in its sweet spot. I, yeah. I've learned it. Yeah, so I always true. know... All right, I'm bringing home the ten tonight, honey. And I just, I'm, I gotta learn it. I gotta learn what it wants. I gotta learn what this piece of wood that was bent into a cylinder likes. Oh, yeah. And um, you know, and so it has, it may have more potential, but um, that happened it, to it, it me when I while. got my uh, Premier Signia kit because I went from a Pearl Export kit to the, you know, so it was like an entry level top of the line Pearl Premier. kit to a to a top of the line Premier kit. And the first couple of weeks, I was like, did I make a mistake? Because I think my yeah. export sounds so much better. It wasn't, I mean, it took me <laughs> a couple months of, of messing around. Like, okay, now it's now it's clearly. Yeah, like, I've done that with every drum set I've ever had. It's, <laughs> it's always like, oh, this new one sucks. <laughs> and then, it, you know, and then I get, and then I find its sweet spot and find its home. So, all right, guys. Well, I think when it comes down to it, Mike and I are saying, just go tune your drums, have fun, you know, yeah. uh, learn. And the one thing that I wish more people would do is, write down your preferences yeah. you got to write down my rack tom likes bottom head loose top head medium uh, you know things like that and don't be um, afraid you will to forget. you know trust your ears and sometimes it's going to be extremely like, counterintuitive that's that's yes. the thing like don't go by any standard practice like every drum yeah. has a different and there'll be some weird things like maybe the bottom head on your floor tom needs to be completely loose I've had that on yeah. my one of my 14s it just sounds amazing with the bottom head like to the point where sometimes the tension rods fall out fall out yeah i'm like all right that drum just loves to be like that (laughs) i've 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 thought my drum was killing the whole night and then at the end of the night the tension rod was on the ground i was like wait it was out the whole night (laughs) the drum sounds amazing (laughs) throwing that thing away um all right well it is time to get into our featured artist and our featured artist this time is none other than the amazing chris coleman if you guys have never seen chris coleman play let's take a listen to him right now would be oh <laughs> god knows how to play the drums right i mean he's been playing for a couple oh, days or a couple jeez <laughs> my heart I, I bet the fitbit says my heart rate is up right now just from listening i'd be worn out and he's smiling the whole time i know oh, he's a freak i mean the clarity in which he plays with is absurd uh I'm watching so, again well, while you're talking. It's like, what is going on? <laughs> I know. He, he's just, he's incredible, man. He's incredible. Uh, so before we get into his drumming and all that stuff, let's let's get a little history. So um, did you did you know that he won the drum off? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Back in was, 2001. Yeah, that's right. I was part of one of the questions, because we, we did a feature on him, I think, 2011, after he played, or maybe it was right before he played the Von Drummer Festival. Okay, and that was one of the one of the topics. I didn't. I had forgotten. I mean, that how long has that contest been going on? I didn't know it was that old. I mean, so he won in two thousand one. Yeah, um, it's been going on for a long time. 
30 I think years maybe, probably. Do you think maybe Thomas Pridgen won at some point when he was a kid? Yes. I thought, I thought Thomas won. Tony? Um, Did Tony win? Royster? I I don't know. I, I think know. I think There's Tony so won them all when he came out to the Modern Drummer Festival at twelve and played. <laughs> Everyone's like, okay, you win for life. You're you're good. You're in the Hall of Fame. You're officially um, good. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, with Chris, I'm trying to think when. What was it that caused him to show up on my radar? Because I th- I think I knew about him probably before social media really took off. I probably knew about him on MySpace. You know, yeah. Um, we put out a DVD that was really pretty great. I still have that. Yeah. We play that all the time in our lobby, and it's fantastic. I mean, he's got a full you know band with him, and and he's teaching. And that was definitely one of those things for me that. You know, you and I both had the Dennis Chambers videotape, right? Yeah, and the first one. Yeah, I had both of them. Yeah, and then, and then the second one too. But he didn't. He never really talked to the camera one on one and really let you in on the process. Um, no, <laughs> he just kind of ripped your face off and was like, "Good luck." <laughs> well, Chris was speaking to the camera and he was breaking it down on a level where I was like, "This guy's like a professional educator," yeah. but I don't associate that kind of playing and those that mastery of the instrument with somebody that could also break it down usually those people are just too genius to say like hell i don't know what i'm doing i just can do it mm-hmm. but chris was really breaking it down and also on a level that i just thought was like wow it's really rare that somebody says okay now we're going to play dotted eighth notes this will be going over the bar line and it'll resolve i'm like holy crap he knows what he's doing and it was just amazing so yeah i still have that um i think it's called creative dynamics is maybe the name yeah, of the dvd maybe controls in there dynamics and control uh, yeah. or something we should probably yeah, should so, have looked for that ahead of time yeah. <laughs> well uh, are, are you looking to see if you have the dvd on your shelf yeah it's not here anymore it's at home i'm sure uh, <laughs> but it, i mean it's it's a it's a really great thing if you guys want to pick that up so but that was i think i knew about him before that but i'm not sure how maybe it really was just that i knew Oh, this is the guy that won the drum off this year, you know, back in 2001. Um, but I've known about him forever. And then I think, you know what I think it was also? I think it was Modern Drummer ads. I think you guys had some ads with him promoting Drummers Collective when he was a graduate. Um, they were, it wasn't Chris Coleman ads, it was Drummers Collective was saying Chris Coleman is one of our graduates. So oh, I was like, well, yeah. maybe I should look up Chris Coleman. Yeah, um, and then that DVD came out and it's called he was playing with precision and power, is what it's called. We were both spot on. Yeah, but yeah, crush that. But then in the description it says this: this third volume of dynamic drumming features Chris Coleman's. I don't know what that means. ABC practicing. So third volume. There's hmm. three volumes of this. I don't know, but this I, the one I had is called and have is called playing with precision and power. You know what? I bet I have. I bet there are three volumes, and I have creative dynamics. Um, huh? Or I'm totally making that up. <laughs> I just would really like to be right so once in this freaking podcast. are we batting like podcast. 250 today? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. No, because you're searching and I'm not. You know what? I think the other way I knew about him was at that time, I was hanging out all all the time with Eric Moore, uh, Larry Belton Jr., and a bunch of gospel cats around Sacramento, and he was playing drums for Israel Houghton in the New Breed. And so uh, yeah. people were always showing, because we were always listening to Calvin Rogers. That's all we listened to. Calvin was on everything. He was playing with Kim Burrell every artist in the world and then it was like no you got to check out this track with chris coleman on it and so i think that's probably how he showed up in my consciousness but now uh we just did the thing in germany together the music mesa festival so we got to hang out a bit and he's he's better than ever Mm. i mean really better than ever he is a beast man he's got that effortless flow but also like the clarity that I think is kind of unmatched by most people. I think that there's a, there's that 
guys who can play with chops, but it ends up sounding kind of blurry and messy. Yeah. And I feel like with Chris, it's like he's got – you know what it is? He's got that Carter Beaufort thing where every note is just super clean and articulate and, and it sounds easy and, and effortless. But when you really take a look at what he's doing, you're like, man, that's – there's so many limbs flying <laughs> you know, and there's like so yeah. many notes and patterns going on all at once. He When he played the uh, – he played the Mountain Jumper Festival 2010, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he was in the small room because at the time we did morning master classes where you know you could buy extra seats to come in and get you know up close and personal. I think it was him and Daniel Glass that that year, that day. I don't remember, but he came out. He had his new kids on the block uh, acrylic kit, sonar acrylic yep. kit, full full rig with the custom uh, rack and everything, and no microphones on the kit. Like for the room, there are microphones for the right. recording, but no like extra sound for the room. Okay, and you could just see everyone just like whoa, take a you know their like their face blew back when he started playing. It was so much yeah. power and so like so much energy. And then and he, he wasn't a, a, a super known commodity at that time in the drum world. No, I mean, some people a, knew who he was, but a lot of people didn't. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's the thing when you're when you're when you're touring behind an artist like New Kids on the Block, like they don't announce the band. At least I don't think they announce the band members on stage right. and things like that. Maybe they do, right. but it's just not as universally known when you're playing right. with a with a pop artist. So but he did an exercise where he turned the click on, which I think there's a clip on YouTube. He had it in five four but it was only playing the one and then all the E's and us. Yeah. And one then, e, uh, yeah, uh, but uh, yep, fast I totally remember that. and a fast five and he solos over it. And you could see everyone in the room was just like, what is happening right now? It's like, we're in a, the matrix. Yeah. Like, I don't know what's going on. Cause he would always <laughs> come back and hit the one like every eight bars or so. So, you know, he's not just like fluffing over the whole thing. Yeah. And I think also from, from my memory, um, all the clinics I'd been to as a kid and the Modern Drummer Festival videos and DVDs, which was my way to see these people play that weren't coming to Sacramento, I'd never seen anyone use a click through the PA, ever. Yeah. No one ever yeah, admitted yeah. that they even practiced to a click. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, no, 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 I'm going to use the click through the PA. And now it's funny. You go see Anna Canillas play. She'll use a click through the PA. Yeah. Yo Snickle, he'll do it. Benny. And it's like, I really think that Chris is the one that allowed us all to be like, yeah, I could I could actually show you how this relates to the pulse. Matt Garska does it yeah. in his clinics, um, and Chris was the first one I ever saw do that. It's freaky. Know? I mean, I, I I looked at the clip this morning, and it took it took a good minute or two for me to even hear what was happening. Like, I, all I hear is e uh, e uh, one e uh, e uh, e one. But if, <laughs> that's the other thing is he doesn't have the beeps on; he has the vocalization the voice, on. Yeah, but eventually yeah. it was like it's a good test of of your internal clock and awareness. If you can watch him do that video solo over fast five four, which is the e's and us, and know where the one is, like, and and that's as a listener. It took me a couple of times, like, all right, I got it, I'm I'm on it, but. He's playing over top of that and never, yeah. never losing the one. So that shows that he has like extreme control of the time when he's. And like you said, that was seven fast. years ago. Yeah, that was right? 2010. He's, he's crazier now. Um, he is. Okay, so when we did this thing at Music Mesa, he's the only artist. Um, there was an educational room. That's where myself, Annika, and Yost were. And then there was a performance room that was a separate room. He's the only artist out of all four days that I actually went out of my way to cram myself into this room that only held like a hundred people to go see like I mean I was really just pushed up against 20 sweaty bodies just so (laughs) I could just see him play because it's like I've never seen him play in person Um, 
Actually, no, that's that's not right. I did see him once at PASIC, and it, it blew me away. Yeah. I saw him at PASIC the year before I played PASIC, and I was like, wait, that's the bar? That's how high the bar is? Like, I don't want to play PASIC. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. It but, brings up something. I had a conversation over the yeah. weekend. Uh, I was in Philadelphia. I met with the Philly Drum Project. Uh, some mm-hmm. of the members, they were having to the, a member retreat to talk about where they're going to take the organization, which was super cool, but... That was one of the things that I I was reminded of. Like the internet will never replace seeing someone play drums live. Like there's no microphones, no, no software, no video, no camera can can actually get you to feel the air moving in a room when a really right. amazing drummer plays. And I, I use mm-hmm. Dennis Chambers as my point of reference. Like I don't I don't think there's a video of Dennis Chambers playing that comes ten percent to the level of power that you get when you're sitting in a room and he's hitting the drums. And right. Chris is yeah. the same way. Like his videos sound great, but to see him in, in that small masterclass room at the Modern Drummer Festival with no microphones and just to feel the air, like he just got the whole room shaking with sound in the most yeah. awesome way. And it was, it's one of those, like, that's why we play drums. <laughs> you know, we don't play drums th- for video. We play drums to right. move people. You know? There was three or four years in a row where, Really, the only reason I went to Nam was to see Chris play at the Sonar booth on Saturday oh, and Sunday. That's right. Yeah, he was in the middle. You know, I mean, of the that booth. was surrounded by people. It <laughs> was the only time that you were allowed by Nam to truly make noise, and no one would shut you down. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that was to come home from Nam with your little flip video recorder um, filled with Chris Coleman solo to show your boys. <laughs> that was like the gem. It's yeah. like, okay, guys. I went out on the deep sea and I found this treasure <laughs> and now I'm going to split I'm going to I'm going to split up the booty with my friends and we would come home and I'd put the flip camera into my uh USB port and we'd watch the Chris Coleman videos yeah. and that was and we'd all freak out and then the one thing that we didn't get out of it was we never thought oh okay we got to go try that it was like well uh I can't, I don't even I don't know where to start like there's nothing I I can't do any of that um but it was like you said it's not like this weird jazz thing where it's like i just don't know what he's doing i know exactly kind of what he's doing i just can't imagine playing it that fast and that precise yeah. and somehow there's still pocket to it that's and like the hard part the fun that's that's the hard oh my part goodness. Like I, I would be yeah. gritting my teeth and like just struggling mm-hmm. mentally to get through playing that type of <laughs> he stuff. has to practice smiling there must be a point like when you and i at the end say okay now i'm gonna work on my dynamics he has that next step which is like now i've crushed it let me see if i can smile while doing this because it's i mean Good God, that's a that's a fifth limb. You got to be like and teeth and just go for it. But he's got it. He that's what is infectious about Chris's playing is when I see if I saw him play that and it looked like work, it would actually be my excuse for never needing to do it. I'd be like, look at that. He he doesn't even like it. Oh, yeah, like he's yeah. he's tortured by this, but he's having so much fun. I'm like, ah, oh, all right, maybe let me work on my singles and get him up to speed. But man, uh, you know, I think that. Uh, who was it? Uh, who's the uh, Robert Glasper, the piano player? Mm-hmm. He's he's given an interview. And I can't remember what it was for. I think it was actually maybe Ken Burns's jazz thing. It was like very at the end where they were starting to get into modern day jazz. Um, and he said he said, "Man, John Coltrane. He used a lot of cuss words, but he said he would be rolling his grave if he found out we were still covering his tunes the way that he did them originally. <laughs> yeah. The whole point of jazz is to push and to push and to keep their legend alive. And you know, you brought up Dennis Chambers, and I think that Chris." It's like, well, Dennis already did Dennis. 
mm-hmm. take it somewhere. And Chris is that next evolution of just like, oh my gosh, precision, yeah. personality, also with a personality that can handle the commercials that he has to do for sonar or minor, he can handle a camera. Like yeah, he's, yeah, true. he's incredible, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's gotta be nothing better than signing Chris to a deal and knowing like, okay, we need you to do a video and you are going to knock it out of the park. Yeah. Not just the playing, the playing's given, but he can speak to a camera, you know? Yeah. Um, true. And he gets people excited. So guys, check out Chris Coleman. It does not have, as far as Mike and I could find, doesn't have a website, but he does use social media quite a bit. So on Facebook, it's just facebook.com slash CRC dot global. And then if you want to follow him on Instagram, that would just be Instagram.com slash CRC underscore global. And you can keep up with him on there. He's a very busy drummer and just one of the best people in the industry. I'm very lucky to consider him a friend for sure. All right, let's get into some gear. Now, I was trying to tempt you into talking about this before the podcast started because I got pretty excited about it and I am not the guy that gets excited about multi-pads. Uh, <laughs> it is not my jam. I'm so but excited this thing to talk about looks, this multi-pad today. Yeah. I, I just get excited about simplicity and it seems like this thing, at least the layout of it is very simple. So give me uh, the breakdown. What are we talking about here? Okay, Nord, um, which is you know highly regarded as one of the premier manufacturers of synthesizers and keyboards and, and such, uh, which is also... Uh, there's also a history that that is not quite as known that the guys who created Nord were actually the guys who created D Drum back uh, back in the day, the electronics. Really? Yeah. So they've had a history. So not the D Drum drum oh. company, but the D Drum original electronic pad. Yeah, yeah the truth. Yeah. Uh, so they have a history with with drums, but they they kind of abandoned it for a while. But then they put out um, a couple of years ago. They put out the Nord drum that I think was like a four pad unit and then a separate module. It was cool, but you had to have both pieces, and they were sold separately, and I think it kind of created a little bit of confusion. So then they put everything together, and now it's a six-pad multi-pad that has the Nord brain in it and six rubber pads. Um, what it makes this one very different than the Roland or the Yamaha or the Alesis is that it's not sample-based. It's 100% synthesis. There's no there's no wave files. There's no MP3s in this thing. It's, it's wow. synthesizing all the sounds artificially uh wow so it so it's you know you're not going to get your like acoustic bass drum acoustic snare drum sound out of this if that's what you need then you need one of the the other type of multi-pads this is more for sound design or if you want to just create really interesting electronic sounds the yeah the effects processing in this is kind of unparalleled you can you can tweak everything about every sound as far as the attack, the resonance, the distortion, the EQ. So you can take one bass drum sound and Dude. turn it into infinite numbers of sounds. So I'm totally – I think I'm actually going to buy this because I'm, I'm trying to find a way to – without getting a keyboard player to thicken up the, the Man on the Moon sound because mm. it's just three of us and we're playing some sparse stuff and – I would love to have some soundscapes, and I was thinking, like, oh, then I have to track down sampled soundscapes on, you know, looperman.com or whatever, and oh, yeah. then put them into my DTX. But what I really wanted was what this thing has always been for keyboard players. If you guys, when we say Nord, and you're like, I don't know what that is, you probably do know what that is. If you've ever seen a keyboard player with a red keyboard, that is... Yeah. 
I guarantee that's Nord. And like almost, almost everybody has one. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And they, and that's how they're getting all these crazy sounds. So um, it's funny. I did not. In all honesty, I didn't make the connection at all between the company until I was like, oh, cool, it's red, same color as that keyboard thing. And then I clicked on products, and I was like, oh, Nord, the company that makes, like, I've played with every keyboard player I've ever played with plays with that. This is the on, the Nord keyboard is on the writer for every keyboard player yeah, that tours, you exactly. know? exactly. Roland Juno, a Nord, yeah, it's like the, the, yeah. the same thing. So this is, yeah, so it's more like that. It's taking the keyboard synthesizer sound design mentality and giving it control to drummers with pads. Sounds like Matt Chamberlain's favorite thing. It's pretty awesome. I mean, I, now you you said you bought one, right? I did. I bought one after I reviewed it because it was just it, it provided something that first of all it provided a level of inspiration that I hadn't felt from other uh, electronic drum instruments before. I didn't feel like I had to mm. like do a lot of pre work, pre producing as far as creating right. samples or finding loops or I just turned this thing on and and twist to a different preset and hit different buttons and inevitably I find something that I never heard before and it inspired me to do something. A lot of my Instagram posts have been just random inspirations based on what this thing has done. Okay, so I know that you've used the wave drum thing in some of your Instagram posts, but a lot of times if we're hearing things that are kind of electric based, it's coming from this? Yeah, exactly. Anything that that sounds like like loops or something that actually has kicks and snares and things in it, that's, that's this thing. So I... I don't. I didn't pre-write anything. I just turned it on, flipped the knob to you know bank B and sound forty, whatever, and play. And then stuff inevitably was like, oh, I've never ever done that before. Let me record it. So it's it's really wow. cool, but it's not. Again, it's not like you're ubiquitous. This will do everything I needed to do. You can't. Load. It's not the replacement for the things that we've reviewed in the past. Yeah, you this can't load anything beast. into it. You can't do any kind of sampling with it it's simply a synthesizer for drums which wow. is pretty cool so i did do a, a demo video of a bunch of presets uh, we can drop in some of the audio for that yeah let's give it a listen Awesome. Well, guys, check out uh, the Nord. Uh, what, what is it called? The, yeah, I mean, the, again, it's a Swedish company, so their their naming of the product is confusing. The company is called Nord, but the product is called the Nord Drum 3P. Okay. So, you, like, even in the heading, I couldn't say it was Nord, Nord Drum. It's it's a Nord Drum by right. Nord, and this model is called the 3P. <laughs> yeah, and then it's funny because, like, I'm looking at it on Sweetwater, and it's like you said, it says 3P on the actual device, and then the heading on Sweetwater 
is Nord Modeling Percussion Synthesizer Multipad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and just so you guys know, I, I'm looking at a few different outlets um, online, and the general price for this thing is around six ninety nine. But if if you know the quality of the keyboards they make, you understand that this is legitimately a very professional device. Yeah. So, so I would combine uh, this with like a cheap loop pedal, like a Line Six Looper or a Ditto loop pedal, and then then you can really get crazy. You can start looping your stuff and and have like nice. endless sounds to mess around with. Uh, and it's got MIDI in and MIDI out. Yeah, um, you can control. You can and it use looks the like sound. you can also yep, you can do whatever you want with it. You could link it up to your to your DTX and have extra. I mean, you could do all kinds of stuff with it. It's, yeah. it's pretty neat. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into some listener questions. All right. So the first one comes from David. Um, he says, I believe through subtract- subtractive EQing, I've identified the worst frequency in my recording space. The culprit is 132 hertz. Is there any way to treat a room for specific frequency or frequency ranges? Ooh. Wow. <laughs> you have come to the wrong podcast. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the fact that you even identified that is awesome. That's, I think one thing that we learn as drummers the first time we work with a real producer is watching them EQ a room when we're not even in there. I remember that yeah. that freaked me out when... Turn the white my noise guy on was, or the pink noise yep, on. Yep. yep, and he's just running the uh, room mics up to 10 on the board and listening. And, yep. and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And And so, yeah, so that is a real thing. And the fact that you even identified the bad frequency of your room is awesome. But... Um, do you know of a way? I, I actually don't. Well, the problem, which I'm assuming this is going to be the case for everyone, small rooms, low frequencies are always going to build up because the wavelength of a 60 cycle, you know, 60 cycle, the frequency of 60 hertz, the wavelength is, is like, I don't know exactly, but it's probably like 20 feet long. <laughs> so right. So it never yeah. actually gets a chance to complete a full cycle before it folds back on itself so you're getting feedback and then it just builds up so if you're in a small room there's no way to 100 percent get a completely balanced uh, low-end response i don't think but uh, in in my case i use a lot of uh, diffusion and okay. i didn't buy any diffusion stuff i just have drums setting around the room so the the sound waves are being you know it's round drum shells so the sound waves are just bouncing in a hundred different directions so there's gotcha. less chance of it hitting a parallel wall and doubling back perfectly on itself to then mm-hmm. you know build up that frequency uh, but that's kind of there's really no way to get rid of it 100 percent in my room the rack tom frequency happens to be the one that's the most prominent so every recording i do the rack tom sounds like it's louder than the rest right uh but you know you can mess around with with bass traps definitely in the corners, um, maybe floating a cloud of fabric above your drums. Definitely make sure the area mm. directly in front of the drums has some absorption and diffusion. So again, what you want to eliminate is the frequency to hit a flat surface and then come straight back on itself because then it just it's just like an echo, a double. It just doubles it up. So unfortunately, that's go. the bane of us home studio owners. Low end, right? <laughs> it's yeah. just always always a problem. All right, the next one comes from um, – oh, we've had a few questions from him over there. I wish I could say it. Drew Mon- Monimity, so Drum Monimity. <laughs> Drum Monimity. Yeah. Um, okay. Drum Monimity. Question. Uh, in my small area, there are basically two kinds of drummers. There are those who seem to be able to do a little bit of everything but never establish their own distinct sound. And then there are those who seem to have their own sound but maybe everything they do always sounds alike. There must be a thin line between mm. those two extremes. 
um, where you have the perfect balance of the two, how do you do both? In other words, how can you be versatile enough to cover many different things yet also have your own distinct voice? I think the versatility is actually pretty easy because that just comes down to practice. Um, you know, you, you stay involved with lots of different genres of music. You listen to lots of different genres of music. You practice. You find out who the masters are of those genres, um, and you learn from them. So the, the versatility isn't too tough. It's finding your own voice that can be really tough. Um, but I also think that depends on who you are as a person. Yeah. Um, if you're a complete artist person, the vers- or the, you know, having your own voice is the easy part. It's doing what you're told is hard because your artistic brain just takes over and wants to create all the time. Um, but I will say this, uh, and this is coming from what I've done with myself and just practice-wise and from knowing guys like Mark, Juliana, who Bingo. you would think <laughs> a bingo word. <laughs> We're racking them up before the 100th episode, man. i got to keep going. Um, but <laughs> knowing somebody that you would think would be the most artistic person by nature and finding out that he's not that and he actually practices being creative and practices – um, even non-creative stuff so much that he has an infinite creative vocabulary. I think you can be, you can find your own voice, but that comes with first, what is your sound? You know, are you changing? If you're changing gear all the time, it's going to be hard to have a voice um, and and have a sound. And then, what what are your tendencies? Um, you might even have a sound and not know it because it's so natural to you. You don't know you have a sound. Yeah. Um, I've brought that up to you, Mike. Like in the last year. I think that you've just kind of created a thing and not even with just the electronic stuff, just your drumming. I can just identify it now mm. where I, I really couldn't three years ago, but you, whatever I can identify about you is your natural thing. So you take it for granted because it's just what you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that was going to be my, my response is that you can't define your sound very, so deliberately. It kind of, mm-hmm. it kind of develops subconsciously, you know, for, out of just your experience of playing and practicing and listening and, and picking apart, like what I like about this guy that I want to bring into my playing. Uh, it's like for me, no matter what, there's a, there's a certain density of the backbeat that I have to produce. And whatever drum I'm playing, whatever sticks I'm using, whatever room I'm in, my hands and ears just adapt so I get that sound, right. whatever it is. Sometimes I have to dig in more. Sometimes I have to play more off-center. And I didn't realize that until I started hearing recordings of myself at different gigs. I'm like, wow, I'm playing a house kit, but that snare drum still sounds like I like I tuned it that way or something. Wow, uh, wow. So I think a lot of it is just you can't force the issue. Um, right. But you know, it's it's really it's tough because someone like Steve Gadd can use the same kit on every gig and always sound like Steve Gadd, but yet be 100% versatile. But right. I wouldn't suggest that for everyone because you wouldn't want to play a bebop oh. gig on a six-piece kit with pinstripe heads and and – you know, and, and have that right. be 100% versatile. Yeah, I think it depends also on what you're going for. I mean, are, are you trying to be a gigging drummer? Then it's like you're going to have to let go a little bit of the artist thing and, and, and morph, you know, and kind of bend into shape of the gig, you know. Um, I don't want to hear... Well, I do want to hear Ari Honig playing Black Eyed Peas, but that's that's very selfish of me. I want to hear it by myself. But you know, if I if I'm at the club and somebody's doing a cover, it's like I really hope that they just kind of do their job and, and yeah. allow me to enjoy the music. Um, so so yeah, um, it, you just kind of have to find that balance for yourself. Yeah, you know? and I think not trying to force things onto other situations again could be what makes you not sound very versatile. I think. Having just using your ears and, and being compassionate for the music, maybe at least for me, right. it's I think a sound is more about your touch and your dynamics than it is about 
your ideas or your gear. Mm-hmm. That's that's my yeah. philosophy. Everyone else would have a different approach. So yeah, I think if you just keep working, you'll find it. You know, there you go. Well, all right, right. we're we're cranking away here on our time, so maybe we should skip to our picks. Picks of the week. Uh, you want me to go what first? You got, buddy. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually I had to change mine, calling it audible because I forgot that we lost one of the icons of jazz drumming over the week. We lost Mickey Roker. Oh wow! Who uh, has a special place for me because I got to spend not enough time, but a fair amount of time with him when I lived in Philadelphia, going to his open mics at Art Liebs and actually interviewed him for a local newspaper. He got his whole life story. And he was the real deal, like one of the true direct lineage, lineages of jazz history. Came up in New Orleans, the whole the whole thing. And he made so many incredible records in the heyday of of Blue Note. Uh, so if we lost a, a titan. He was also, wow. I mean, he was probably in his late seventies at the time, and I mean, he was still has so much fire when he played. I learned, um, I learned that it's not the gear; it's the drummer from him because his drum kit at nice. that session if you look at it you'd be like oh man they must have just pulled that out of some rehearsal studio somewhere it's like got pinstripe heads and he was using like a heavy ride and when I hit the thing it sounded really terrible when he hit it it sounded like 1965 on a Blue Note record I mean it was so he um, taught you right away that it was the touch not right the away and I, I it was yeah. so dejecting to come off that first session and be like why did I feel like I couldn't play the drums and then he gets up there and it sounds perfect like it sounds exactly like wow. i want my jazz drums to sound like so anyway wow. he was huge everyone in philly of course knows how important he is but i think he's often overlooked um by a lot of drummers because he he came up in that like that middle ground when jazz became a little bit more r&b and fusion was okay. kind of taken over and so he's kind of in that that murky area of the late 60s that i think um there's a lot of gems in there. And one record, my pick of the week is Herbie Hancock's Speak Like a Child. Okay. It's, it's, I think it might be Herbie's last like straight-ahead jazz record before he got into the, the funk stuff. And it swings like no other. And Mickey's killing it. And he's playing you know, a little bit of, of Roy Haynes kind of vibe. It's real, real organic and super hip. That's one of my all-time favorite records. I probably played along to it 10,000 times. So... Uh, Man, I'm watching this cat right now play with uh, Milt Jackson. Yeah, yeah, and I think he's playing. It looks like he's playing like a 16 inch ride. It's so small. <laughs> yeah, his gear um, was weird, but he made it sound so good. But he's swinging. Yeah, man. So, oh, yeah. that's awesome. God bless me. Actually, and his family. Um, yeah, and he, he actually he passed away at 84. So that's not that's not a bad life lived. Yeah, no, he'd retired. I think he had officially like retired and was just Beautiful, chilling man. at home. And he lived in Philly. I think most of his life he moved there when he was a kid from New Orleans and you know he was just such a huge icon in Philadelphia and I know everyone who got to spend time with him was very grateful I wish I would have spent a lot more I was naive and thought he'd be around forever and I should have been there every every week and just absorbing yeah. him but you know long yeah. I mean good thing is he's on hundreds of records so we can study him forever awesome. but that's my number one Mickey Roker record Herbie Hancock Speak Like a Child love it um so my pick of the week is actually something that I think all drummers that are going to be working in any capacity, especially if you're a multi-working drummer, like I teach lessons, I host drum camps, I'm now in a band, um, and and I'm a practicing drummer, meaning I practice quite a bit by myself. And that is the um, – now, I don't care who makes it. I'm just telling you the one that I have. But the Yamaha DSR-112 12-inch powered speaker. 
And having a powered monitor, a really high quality powered monitor, is super important for me. One, it gives me a speaker, a very loud speaker that has amazing quality that my student, if I need to say, okay, cool, like yesterday, everybody was working on their halftime shuffle. Awesome. Now I want you to play it in the class, not with headphones or anything. I just want you to play it with this song. You know, we put on uh, Grapevine Fires by Death Cab or whatever. And I have this powered speaker that can actually keep up with a drum set. Mm. Then later on in the day, I'm like, all right, guys, as a class, we're working on our subdivisions. Now I put my metronome through it and the whole class can hear this thing. Then, which is even more important, uh, my band plays. Well, I have stairs and my guitar player doesn't want to lug <laughs> two cabs and a head. So he takes his pedal board and he plugs right into this. And he's he's been using my powered speaker as his cabinet for and his amp for every rehearsal we've ever done. Nice. And it cuts down on him. So now because I don't want to travel to somebody else's place and bring a drum set for every rehearsal. But they also don't want to bring their stuff. Yeah. And so I'm like, dude, I have all the heavy lifting. All you have to bring is your pedals. I actually have two of these, so my bass player can use one too. And that's that's where we get all of our sound from. It's not cheap. It's a, You're looking at about 800 bucks. but I'm telling you, don't save money on this. If you're ever going to do it, get one great powered speaker. You'll have it for the rest of your life. You can practice with it. Um, and this is another thing too. We all are spending way too much time, in my opinion, practicing with great quality headphones or in-ear monitors, and we are not using our ears at all. And then we get into a live room, and we're just jacked, and we don't know how to play with the room anymore. So when I get something down, then I'll put some John Mayer on this speaker, which is five feet away from me, and I jam to that. And that teaches me you know, no earplugs, no in-ear monitors, and then I'm playing to the room and the sound in the room. And I've noticed I have to bring my volume way down mm. to make that happen, yeah. but it's, it gets me in that zone of just the reality of live music so uh yeah it's just the yamaha dsr 112 it's a 1300 watt 12 inch powered speaker um yeah it's it it i've never had a drummer here at camp that was too loud for me for my speaker (laughs) i can always push it um so yeah but but the main thing the reason why i'm really recommending it is it's become my guitar player's head and cabinet and he just brings his pedal board and plugs direct into it it's beautiful nice and never feeds, and that's what we record everything with. So, yeah, there you go, everybody. Please keep sending your questions to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We're coming up on our 100th episode. Yep, that's going to be fun, dude. I'm, I'm excited. I guess I guess next week we should start teasing. I mean, we are going to be doing some pretty significant giveaways for this little podcast. Yeah, it got a little <laughs> legit got, all of a sudden. Got a little serious. Recognized. Yeah, I can't even believe Elon Musk was so generous I to know, give offer. away your car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't remember if that was the details. I think it was something about two uh, percent off on a new Model Three, but maybe it was give away my car. I can't remember. I'll have to re- I'll have to check the email. Uh, anyways, uh, Mike and I will be out walking our dogs. If you see us in uh, Jersey or Folsom, please come by and say hi, and uh, I'll see you soon, buddy. All right, see ya. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.